right. Praise the Lord. What a song to rejoice in this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Should be a familiar text to you on the day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, This is the first opportunity I think I've ever had to preach uh, during the Christmas season, the Sunday right before or after Christmas, and then uh, to also be able to do so on Sunday and on Christmas Day is a huge blessing. And I thought, you know, of all the texts to go to, uh, they're, they're all open to me. I haven't done any of them. I thought we really should go to Luke chapter 2 and uh, rejoice in what we can see here in this text concerning uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Of course, it's a special privilege for us to celebrate Christmas together today. Um, Christmas only occurs on Sunday every five or six years or so, and occasionally once every 11 years. Uh, I looked it up, there's a pattern of sorts, but we don't get to do this very often. And so it's a special day uh, because it is Christmas, it's a special day because it's the Lord's Day, and so uh, we look forward to getting some time uh, in the Word of God today. Today we're going to look at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2. In verse 10, an angel says that he's bringing good news, or the gospel, to the shepherds. One of the main reasons why this day is a special Christian holiday is because it is the beginning of the gospel, or the gospel in its early stages. Later on, if you would keep reading Luke's gospel, you would find out that the gospel also includes the death and resurrection for sins, for our sins. But here, when, when, when Luke says that the angels proclaim that the birth of Jesus is the good news, it helps us to see that the birth of Jesus is a very important part of the gospel itself. Uh, this morning, I want to look at, especially at how God the Father orchestrated all the events of the birth of Jesus. Uh, Luke specifically tells the story of the birth of Jesus in a fourfold narrative. And I just simply like to read through the narrative with you and make some comments upon that, drawing attention to both the rule of God the Father and the rule of Jesus Christ uh, the Son. And so we start in verse 1, verses 1 through 3, give us the setting of the birth story. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. In the setting here, we're introduced to two characters, uh, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. In some of your Bibles, it would be translated Cyrenius. We actually don't know much about Quirinius or Cyrenius, but we do know a little bit more about Caesar Augustus. Caesar was a very important Roman ruler. And as we read through the text, we'll learn more and more about him, or I guess knowing more and more about him will help us understand what's going on here in this passage. What we know about Caesar Augustus is that he was the nephew of Julius Caesar and an adopted son of Caesar. Caesar Augustus ruled Rome himself for over 40 years, from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. or so. And uh, his rule was used by God in multiple ways to prepare the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
One of the ways or one of the things that God used in Caesar Augustus' rule to prepare the way for the gospel was a, a set of peace that Caesar Augustus was able to, to come to in the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was approximately 200 years of peace that starts with Caesar's rule here. And of course, God uses this time of peace to set ideal conditions for the advance of the good news of Jesus Christ, for its spread throughout all of the world. But another way that God used Caesar Augustus um, is important to our text. Caesar Augustus was not only a powerful Roman ruler, he was also a proud man who was obsessed with measuring the wealth and the scope of his own administration. This meant that Caesar Augustus often engaged in registering the population of the entire Roman Empire in a census. A census like the one we read about here lists the names and the properties of those within Rome's reach, primarily for the purposes of taxation and possible military service. But there's one thing about Caesar Augustus I would like to especially draw to your attention. And that is, according to a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, Caesar Augustus kept the grand total of all of the census, or censuses by hand. It is well documented that, 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 that he was obsessed with acquisition in his own country. And what is very ironic to me here is that God used this ruler to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. The Messiah, Jesus, had to be born in a very little town of Bethlehem. And God used the overreaching, power-grabbing attitude of a Roman ruler to get Mary and Joseph there. So Luke emphasizes the sovereign ruling hand of God, even over the affairs of this life, including the very setting for the birth story of Jesus. This starts in Luke 2 here, and actually uh, the emphasis that Luke has on the sovereign hand of God can be seen all throughout his gospel and the other book that he wrote, the book of Acts. This is a theme of his. Luke loves to emphasize the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of humanity, whether that would be a Roman Caesar or any other thing. I see Luke's emphasis on the sovereignty of God in many ways throughout this book. I see it on the structure of the Gospel of Luke. If you were to dig in a bit into the structure of, of the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that Luke arranges all the events of the life of Jesus according to a geographical progression. And so after the introduction, things start way out in Galilee or beyond, and, and Luke has everything progressing in the life of Christ down to Jerusalem. It goes from Galilee to Samaria to Judea to Jerusalem. Everything progresses geographically to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me as well that that's how the book of Acts starts. The book of Acts 
the second part of the story, starts in Jerusalem and then advances geographically through Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and then to the ends of the earth. If you've ever looked much at this way that Luke frames his material, it really emphasizes one thing, and that is God is sovereign. He was sovereign in the events of Jesus' life that led him to the cross. And he was sovereign over the spread of the gospel to the city of Rome or the ends of the age by the end of the book of Acts. God is sovereign. Another way you see the sovereignty of God in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, is in the sheer number of passages that talk about this little phrase called the way. The way is a shorthand term for, for Luke that indicates the path that the events in the gospel narrative took under the constant care and superintending of God the Father. And so in the book of Luke, if you're reading through it sometime in the next few weeks, you'll see that there are nine passages where Luke talks about the way, the way that the gospel events would unfold and the way the church would be established. In the book of Acts, six different passages talk about the way. In Luke, he portrays the way to Jerusalem, the way to the cross. In Acts, he tells Theophilus, the person that he was writing this book for. Originally, he tells Theophilus the way to the ends of the ages. One of the great themes of Luke's writing, no doubt, is God's sovereign plan. I see that as well in a little phrase called, uh, a little phrase often translated, it is necessary. It is necessary. Luke uses this phrase over and over again in Luke and Acts to highlight the sovereign power and plan of God the Father. If you're reading through Luke, you would see that it was necessary for Jesus to be in his father's house at a certain time in Luke 2, 49. It was necessary that Jesus preach the kingdom. God required it that Jesus would heal a woman tormented by Satan. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die and to be raised from the dead. And the preaching of repentance was a divine necessity. It must take place in some one of the great themes of Luke's gospel is the sovereign plan of God and what we learn about at the beginning of this story in the birth narrative and its setting is that God's sovereign reach extends far beyond earthly the earthly powers of those in government he was sovereign over Caesar Caesar probably didn't even realize what was going on, but God had a plan. And the plan was to get Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy uh, for Jesus, the Messiah. And what a good reminder to us who fret about the movement of world powers in our world today. God is absolutely sovereign. He can lead any ruler to issue whatever decree he wants to perform his will. And so we rejoice in that setting. Then we go to the birth itself, verses 4 through 7. Look at verse 4. 
And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The birth itself is actually quite simple. And Luke's pace at describing it is very quick. As a matter of fact, only one verse really gives the specific details about the the birth of Jesus Christ, God-man entering flesh. That's verse 7. In verses 4 through 6, you get a little bit more about the journey that took place from Nazareth, uh, where Joseph and Mary were from. You get that journey of approximately 90 miles to Bethlehem, the city of David. So we're looking through some of the information here. We learned that uh, Bethlehem and David being connected are, are really important because in the Old Testament, we, we saw that David was born in Bethlehem. But it's not only important to connect Jesus to David, but it's important to connect Jesus and his birth to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn for just a brief moment back to the book of Micah in the Old Testament. The prophet Micah, if you can find that this morning. And I want to look very quickly at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. And I'm going to read portions of this. You can follow along in your Bible. In Micah 5, 2, Micah said this about 750 years before Jesus was ever born. Micah wrote this. But you, Micah 5, 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be named among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Skipping a bit. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And then skip to the end. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In this prophecy, years before the birth of Christ, we learn that God was not only sovereign over the acts of Caesar Augustus in the first century, we see that God was sovereign over the fulfillment of prophecy. Over the fulfillment of prophecy. And here he says that someone will come out of Israel, out of the little town of Bethlehem, and his fame will spread to the ends or the edges of the earth in reference to Jesus Christ. And going back to our text in Luke chapter 2, we can also really contemplate for a moment the role of Mary in the birth of Jesus. One of the most perplexing things to me as I studied this passage this week was to consider why Mary was even here in Bethlehem. 
Uh, the more research I, I did, the more I realized that you know, there weren't any special requirements that would demand a woman to accompany a man during times of registration like this. And whether Mary actually knew or was aware of the messianic expectations of Micah 5, I don't know for sure. But one thing we can be very confident of is that God the Father knew exactly what was going on. And so we see here that God is sovereign over the womb of Mary and her birth in the little city of David. But look with me at Luke 2 and verse 7. The actual events here of the birth of Jesus are told in three very simple verbs. This is what Mary did. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Number two, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And third, she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here we see she gives birth to Jesus. She wraps him in strips of cloth to indicate her care or concern for him. Also, uh, her love for him. And then she lays him in a manger, right? One of the things I think that is true of us in America is, or even as believers, is we tend to glamorize the birth of Jesus. And in some ways, rightfully so, right? This is a special day for us. But the actual account in Luke's gospel is quite simple. And the setting itself is far from what we might expect for the way the Son of God should be treated. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the second person of the Trinity, the radiance of the Father's glory. What kind of reception do you think the Son of God deserved? I was reading this week and I came across the words of Philip Graham Riken. Riken says it well. He said, Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship him. He desired to, to have every creature in the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, come to the cradle and give him praise. He deserved birth in a mansion or palace surrounded by those who would care for him properly. But what reception did he actually receive? Well, he was put into a manger, a feeding trough, in a shelter for animals. Perhaps the greatest paradox the world has ever seen is the birth of baby Jesus and the fact that he pillowed his head his first night over 2,000 years ago today where oxen had been eating the days before. This was an obscure, humble birth for the Son of God. Yet God the Father was absolutely sovereign over that as well. 
Because as Luke will write this gospel and as he develops it, one of the messages that Luke has for anyone who would read his gospel is that Jesus Christ can relate to those who are social outcasts or those who are poor. This becomes very important for Luke. Jesus is the perfect man. And it doesn't matter if if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're an officer or you're a felon. Jesus Christ can relate to you. He is the perfect son of God. Come from heaven above. But he comes and he's born in a very low, obscure place. Small inn in the very little town of Bethlehem. In an animal room pillowing his head in a feeding trough. Jesus, the Son of God. This is a birth itself. But the perspective changes in the story in verse 8. And we go from the inn, and next thing we know, we're in a field. Look with me in verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born uh, this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verses 8 through 14 here were introduced to a whole new cast of characters in the true story of Jesus Christ. First, we come across shepherds in a field. Shepherds themselves represent the lowliest of society as well. They were considered unclean by Jewish standards and practices because of their occupation and their reputation and their lifestyle. Shepherds were treated as the lowliest of their culture except for lepers. Yet God here in his sovereign plan affords these shepherds the greatest privilege, one of the greatest privileges ever. As an angel of the Lord appears to them. Actually, not only does an angel appear to them, but the glory of God himself appears to them. The glory of God in the New Testament, I think, often represents the bright presence of God's being. And I'm sure that these shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks by night were shocked at the bright light and the sounding of the angel. As a matter of fact, the text says that it filled them with fear. Filled them with fear and awe. But God does not simply want them to be filled with fear. But he steadies their fear. and He orders through the angel that be said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. And they begin to describe a little bit more of what this 
good news, this gospel is, that there would be a birth, that there was a birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These three titles for Jesus become very important all throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus is a Savior. He is a deliverer. He rescues men and women from their sins. As a matter of fact, later on in Luke's writings in Acts 4 and verse 12, they'll say that salvation can be found in no other place. There's no other person given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is a savior. He's a deliverer from the sins of humanity. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. And this angel also announces that he is the Lord, the sovereign ruler over all other lords. So the angels make this announcement concerning Christ. And just after making the announcement and giving them a sign regarding who this child would be, a whole host of new characters appear in the sky. If you look down in your Bible at verse 13, you can see that joining, as Pastor Paul had even said in the previous part of the service, joining this angel, there was a multitude of angels or multitude of heavenly hosts who suddenly appear and then who chime in by praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In verses 8 through 14, what you have is you have the response of heavenly beings to the birth of Jesus Christ. And the birth of Jesus, at the birth of Jesus, there was an incredible movement in heaven as angels stirred to look into what was going on. And God enables these heavenly beings to overcome the normal forces of creation during a dark night to proclaim that good news has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, here we have a testimony to the sovereign power and the ability of God the Father. The presence of these angels and the glory of God overwhelm the night as these angels ascribe worship from the highest heaven. But there's one scene left in the story, and that's verses 15 through 20. And here we see the earthly response to the birth of Jesus. Look with me at verse 15. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things considering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Verses 15 through 20, 
Luke describes the earthly response of human beings to the birth of Jesus Christ. You, as, as, as I've been walking through the story, the birth of Jesus, I assume that many of you have heard good parts of this story. Part of God's goodness or grace to us in the country in which we live is, is to have, uh, have the opportunity often to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But as we go through those events, one of the things that Luke would really ask for each one of us to consider is the way we would respond to the birth of Jesus. And I want to take the response of three, diff- three different responses. And I'd like to ask you to consider how you are responding to the person of Jesus. First, we have the response of the shepherds. After the angels and the glory of God disappear in the, in the sky, in the darkness of the night, the shepherds determine very quickly that they're going to go and they're going to check out what, what God had told them through the angel. And when they get there to Bethlehem, they find it just as he had told them. This is the sign, a baby in swaddling clothes in a manger. And they find it. And all of this is too much for the shepherds so that they become what I'm going to call this morning the first evangelists of the good news of Jesus. The text says, if you look in this narrative, that they went around telling everyone what had happened to them concerning Jesus. And then they returned back glorifying and praising God for everything that he has revealed to them. Men and women, if, you truth, if we truly believe the events of the gospel story, if we believe that one day God the creator became flesh in the form of a small baby, or if we believe that the sovereign hand of God was able to orchestrate all of these things, even so that angels would appear in the night sky to proclaim the glories of God. If we believe that, we would be like the shepherds, right? If, if we really believe this story and we considered its significant for, significance for our lives, we would go around telling everyone else about the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. And so the first way I want to encourage you is with the response of these shepherds. I mean, they were just so stoked about seeing the angel and seeing the bright lights and then seeing the sign exactly as it was told, a baby in swaddling clothes in a manger that they went around telling everyone about the good news. Is that true of you? Maybe this Christmas season, the Lord could stir within your heart again a fresh desire an energy for proclaiming that message. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we see the response of all those around Bethlehem in the text. If you look in your Bible in verse 18, you start looking there, it says that all who heard it, testimony of the shepherds, wondered at what the shepherds were saying. So all those in the little town of Bethlehem and around the events were wondering. This means they were astonished. This makes a lot of sense, right? They were amazed, mystified. 
I mean, this is not an ordinary birth story. God made flesh through the womb of Mary. But all around Bethlehem wandered. But their response falls short, I believe, of the response that Luke would have us finally consider. And that is the response of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you're looking through this story, near the end of the story, Luke tells us that Mary, of the, the mother of Jesus, treasured up all of the events surrounding the birth of her son in her heart. And she considered them. She continued to consider them. This means she engaged in an extended period of sustained reflection over what the shepherds told her and about how God had led her to Bethlehem and the birth of her son. And this is a very important part for Luke as he writes this gospel because he not only mentions it in verse 19, look in your Bible, verse 19, Luke 2, 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Do you ever notice that's how he ends this chapter as well? Very near the end of this chapter in Luke 2, 51, Flip over there. This is now after the birth of Jesus. Jesus has been in the temple doing a a lot of amazing things. The end of Luke 2 and verse 51, it says, and his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. Uses the same language that he used for the way Mary responded to the events around the birth of Jesus. Men and women, Luke records this narrative so that you and I might respond to the birth of Jesus in the same way as Mary. So as we close this morning, will you take a moment away from what we have made Christmas to be with little drummer boys and animated snowmen and gifts and rapping and jingle bells to reflect on the way that God orchestrated the events to arrange the most important birth of all time? Will you treasure these things up and consider them in your heart? Perhaps you're here this morning and you have never declared to God that you believe in the events of the birth of Jesus and of the death of Jesus. Perhaps also, as important, the resurrection of Jesus for your sins. Will you take a moment to tell God this morning that you believe this and that you need this gospel? Jesus came and he died for you, for your sins. Your sins separate you from God for all eternity so that you would be damned to a place called hell unless you believe in Jesus and you repent of your sin. This is the greatest message of all time. Men and women, we must respond properly to the sovereign hand of the Father in orchestrating the events of the most important birth of all time, the birth of His Son, 
Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think through a very important text in your word. The story of Jesus' birth is told very quickly by Luke. But then, Father, we see the response of heaven to this amazing birth. Where the angels declare glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But then we also see the response by human beings surrounding this story. Father, we learn from the response of shepherds who gladly proclaimed the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to other people. And then we see the response of his mother Mary. Lord, as Mary pondered these things in her heart and she tried to weigh the significance of them, I would pray for any person in this room today who has never professed faith in Jesus Christ. I'd pray that the Christmas story, this Christmas, would, would, would hit them in a way it never has before. May they see that this birth story is the most important thing that you would have them here this season. We thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to focus on Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we leave here for the rest of this day, that we would proclaim the glories of Jesus, that he would be our focus, and he would be the delight and joy of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.